or that last song that talked about Jesus paying our for our sins. And uh, you know, this is Palm Sunday, and it's amazing to me. It's always amazing to me when I read that story how the crowds could on one day say, Hosanna, the king, and then crowds in the same city a few days later say, crucify him. Well, there's a story behind the story always. On that day of, that we call Palm Sunday, there were a lot of people who, who were excited about Jesus. But then there were those who didn't like what he did after that parade. And so they stirred up trouble. And by the time... Uh, by the time Friday got here, uh, there were people who were ready to say, crucify him. Um, he took the fall for our sins. And then he taught his disciples to pray. Uh, he says, when you pray, pray this way. And, and it says, and in that prayer it says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And every time that we have done something, we can go to God and he forgives us. And then because we've been forgiven, we can forgive. Uh, I don't know if there's somebody you need to forgive. I don't know about that. If there is, I'd encourage you to, and that you haven't been able to, that's, some, that's a struggle sometimes. Take it to God this morning. But it also says in that same model prayer, give us our daily bread. And maybe you know somebody who needs some help in their lives. And so as we pray, why don't you pray for them? Father, it is... Uh, we're just in awe that you paid for our sins. You paid for what we had done. And you're ready to forgive us then. You're ready to forgive us now. We thank you for that. And Lord, we also pray for people who don't even know you, who have no knowledge of you. They have a distorted picture. May your spirit go in their lives and do what none of us can do and make them open to you. We do ask your blessings in our lives. There are some here this morning who have uh, been struggling for a long time with physical issues, and there's others who have been struggling with financially with knowing where things were going to come from. And Lord, I thank you that you have knowledge of what we need, and you are willing to give and provide, and you take care of our needs. And so many times, Lord, you give us blessings. And we thank you for those blessings. We ask that you'll be with us this morning as we worship in word. And ask that you'll guide our hearts and minds that we'll hear what you want us to hear. Amen. I, uh, God does give us blessings. Sometimes they're small blessings. I was reminded of a blessing that I got a few years ago at my daughter's wedding. Last night I was reminded about it. Because uh, some of you are Ohio State basketball fans, and you know that we lost in the first round to Oral Roberts University. And then they went on, and they beat Illinois, if I remember right. And then they were going to play Arkansas. And uh, you, you have no not reason to know this, but we are fans of Arkansas sports. Uh, they're, below, they're below Ohio State, and they're way above Michigan, but we are fans of Arkansas because our son-in-law is a graduate of Arkansas. And uh, so that, that talking to them about the game reminded me of a blessing that God sent to me a few years ago. His brother is a graduate of Baylor. And Arkansas and Baylor are playing in the next round. And uh, at the wedding, when 
our daughter and Justin got married uh, several years ago. Justin wasn't a real fan of sweets, and he really didn't like wedding cake and wedding frosting. And so they told me that they weren't going to have a traditional wedding cake. And I said, oh, okay. And inside I'm going, oh, shoot. Because I really like wedding cake frosting. But then as they shuffled dates around, as they were getting ready, you know how that happens sometimes. It turns out that the day they chose was Justin's brother's birthday. And they thought, well, we at least ought to have a birthday cake. And I thought, good, wedding frosting. <laughs> and so uh, it was a very small cake, and, and it was designed primarily for Justin's brother. But for some reason, I think it was because after he took the piece out, I hid it. He couldn't find it. It got left. And I'm left with almost a whole cake that is all mine. And I really like wedding frosting. And when I was a pastor, I would do lots of weddings. And I, I would always get invited to the receptions. And sometimes I didn't know the people that well. But there was the hope that they would have wedding frosting. However, somewhere, somebody introduced whipped cream frosting. It looks like wedding frosting. But it doesn't taste like it. So I learned to just look around. Is that the real stuff? I didn't want to stick my finger in it. Although I always got the piece on the corner, if I could. But every once in a while, I was fooled. And you know what I wanted to do? I just wanted to spit it out. And I said all that to say, that's the verse we're going to look at in Revelation today. And the church, that when Jesus got a taste of them, he said, Ugh! it's like lukewarm water. And he wanted to spit it out. And I know exactly how he felt. Because that's how I feel about, I, what is it called, buttercream frosting? And, and, and you see, the, the, the reason I, I really got hooked on buttercream, well, I knew it, I, have was, I was hooked before this. But I got, for 10 years, I was pastor of a church where there was a lady who made wedding cakes. And all the time, she would bring me a bundle of corners because she would cut off the things to decorate them in different directions. And a jar of buttercream frosting. And um, that was great. But when you're expecting something in your mouth and you don't get it, you just want to spit it out. So let's go to Revelation 3.14. And this is about Laodicea. And it's a well-known verse about a lukewarm church. It says in verse 14, Write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the Amen the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Now, the, the word amen, because a lot of people, you might, you, might, uh, you might remember that a lot of people say amen in a service sometime. And what they're saying is when they hear something, th they're agreeing with it. That's a sign of acknowledgement that this is true. And so Jesus is saying, I'm the amen. And I agree, and, and truth agrees with me, and I agree with truth. And then he said to them, I know all the things you do, which he has said to other churches, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. So he wasn't necessarily saying he was a fan of something hot or something cold. He probably liked them both. 
but he didn't like lukewarm. But since you are like lukewarm water, I will spit you out of my mouth. And Christ was the faithful and true witness. And the Laodiceans in this church were rich and powerful. God was faithful and true. They were rich and powerful. Spiritual lukewarmness is um, it's a state of being self-reliant. It's a, it's a, when, when we are spiritually lukewarm as a follower of God, as a follower of Christ, we, are, we have become self-reliant. It means that we can, we can pretty well supply everything that we need by ourselves. We don't, it's not that we don't believe in God. We just don't depend on God. And that is the temptation of our times. It's interesting that the last church in Revelation is most like us. Because life in uh, Laodicea was pretty good. And that's one of the reasons why they became lukewarm. Uh, it was a wealthy city. There was a lot of money that flowed through there. And it was based on three things, banking and clothing and med school. And as I've mentioned before, that this, these churches in Turkey, where the seven churches were, are at, that wasn't called Turkey then, it was on the trade routes. And there was a lot of gold that passed through here. And so they would set up banking centers so that people uh, could literally deposit something in a safe place and then take some, leave it there for a while and go to another place and things like that. And so it was also a clothing industry. And I'll talk about that in a little bit and a medical school. In this particular town, the Christians were not persecuted. And they were not rejected necessarily by the Jews. I'm not sure why they weren't persecuted. I'm not sure why they weren't put out of the synagogues. But they, they had grown to a place where they were believers in Christ, believers in God, but not dependent upon him. And see, God loves us too much. What do we start the model prayer as? Our Father, which art in heaven. Nobody loves us more than God the Father. And uh, my, did your, did your parents ever say, this hurts me more than it hurts you? I didn't understand that until I was a father. And um, I guess it really does. It really did. But a good father, a good mother, doesn't let their children go undisciplined. And that's just, that, that's, that's, that's not good for your kids. That's just not good for your kids. Now, it might be easier now, but it's worse later. And so God loves us too much to let us go undisciplined. And so in verse 19, he says, I am the one who corrects and disciplines everyone I love. Be diligent and turn from your indifference. The message to this church was to do everything to stay possible in a culture or in a town that made it really easy to stay lukewarm. And our culture, I mean, I've talked to you some of the things that people don't like about Christians, and even Oral Roberts University, it was off the radar until March Madness, and they beat Ohio State and then Illinois, and they became the Cinderella team. The world has turned on them really fast once they found out they were a Christian school 
and it had some biblical values. But that's just, at this point, whether it goes more, I don't know. That's, that's just a lot of rhetoric, name-calling. Maybe they'll rise up and try and do something about them or against them, but it's not really something that, that's there for us. We're not really in that spot. And, and we're more prosperous. You can say, I'm not very prosperous. The fact that you're here, you're more prosperous than many, many other places in the world. And a lot of you have traveled that, and you know that. So the question that I, that I want to throw out to you is this, as we study this passage, is for you and I to ask, how am I relying on God? Because a prosperous culture, is, it's easy not to rely on Him. We've got the government, or Cleveland Clinic, or the latest discoveries. We've got all kinds of things that we don't have to rely on Him because there's, we can rely on ourselves, or we can rely on the discoveries of the culture that we live in. Let's go on in uh, verse, I'm going to go back to verse 17. Jesus is talking and He says, You say, I am rich, I have everything I want, I don't need a thing. And, and then He just shocks them. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. They were blinded to what they really were because of where they were. Like I said, lots of coins in this banking town. But the clothing industry was uh, something that was unique to this area because there was, a, there was a, a, a variant of sheep that had black wool. Uh, it, it, was, it, it, it was natural. It didn't even have to be dyed. And so they, were allowed, they got the black wool from this sheep that lived in that area. And because they were one of the few places around that had it, uh, people would, would, they could export it. And there was, a, there was a high demand, low availability. And so the price would, was high for a, a really nice wool jacket that was black wool. And then they had a medical school, probably not like Cleveland Clinic, but a medical school that specialized in eye care. No glasses, but they had still eye care. And there were a lot of remedies out there that can make, make you see better when your eyes have been infected. Even way back then, we would call them maybe home remedies now, but they were the latest thing in medical research then. And so people would come to this town. And that brought, when you have people, well, I know, I don't know if anybody here lives in Vermilion, but every year they have the woolly bird, woolly, what is it, woolly, woolly bear. I've never been there, but I, the woolly bear festival. And they have thousands of people come in, and there are people who make lots of money from that in the town. I had a friend who had a motel in Green Bay, Wisconsin. He, he owned several of them, and he built them, and he had one in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And he says, I never, ever sell it out except when the Packers are home because thousands of people come in. But he made enough money to keep a motel there even for just 10 weekends a year. So when you have, you have the banking and the black wool and the medical school, there's lots of money coming in there. And Jesus says, you're prosperous, but you've got to look to me for true prosperity. So, 
we're going to see, I'm going to switch this, this off because it, this thing is falling off my ear. It's distracting me and it's probably distracting some of you as it's distracting me. So I'm going to use. Now there we go. Okay, so you have you have you have Jesus saying, "Look to me," and he wants us to look to him as the banker. Look to God for the finest gold. In verse eighteen, the first part of eighteen, I advise you to buy gold from me. Gold that has been purified by fire. They could trade and exchange gold anywhere in town. And Jesus is saying, that's not the purest gold. Buy gold from me, the purest gold, purified by fire. Uh, You've probably read about or heard about how gold is purified. It's heated really hot. And all the impurities rise to the top and somebody skims them off. That's the kind of thing that God wants to do in us. He wants us to come under his fire (laughs) that causes us to see things and recognize true things, and then he will purify us. He will skim them off. Um, A number of years ago, somebody introduced me to a series of kids' books by C.S. Lewis called The Chronicles of Narnia. And I've read them and read them and read them. In fact, this week I started reading them again. C.S. Lewis was an atheist, uh, World War II, pre-World War II, somewhere in this area, and he became a Christian. And he wrote a series of of kids' books uh, that are called The Chronicles of Narnia for his niece to learn some important truths. Well, these are all based on the Bible. I don't know if you realize that, if you've read The Chronicles of Narnia. And they're an analogy uh, about great biblical truths. And I believe, I have, found, I have learned to understand some of the great biblical truths best by reading the stories of Narnia. And there's one in there about a kid named uh, uh, Eustace. And uh, the key character in, the, in all these is Aslan, the, the lion. And Aslan represents Christ. In fact, in the, in the book, uh, the, one of the very first books, Aslan sacrifices his life for one of the children in the story. And when my daughter was five years old, when all they had was the black and white version of the Chronicles of Narnia, we sat down one night and, you know, the VHS, and I would pause it, go through this scene, I would pause it, and I'd say, now, Angela, this is, this is why Aslan, this is how it represents Christ. And then he was resurrected, and I said, this is how he overcame the death. And, and so if you, if, you, uh, if you read it from the perspective of the Bible, there's all kinds of Bible truths told in a story form. And you've got Eustace, who was, who was just a rotten little kid. And by the way, his parents did believe in discipline. And, uh, and he just was a thorn in the neck to everybody who met him. And he ended up on going back to Narnia. They were from England. They got transported to Narnia. Ended up on a ship called uh, the Dawn Treader. 
And he, everybody, it was a, everybody had to work, and he was just such a pain. And they landed on an island, and everybody's going to go find firewood. And he took off in the mountains because he didn't want to go get firewood. And he ran into a dragon, and then the dragon died of old age right in front of him. And then he discovered the dragon's lair, and he took a gold ring, a gold ring that was a bracelet, uh, on a grown man, but on a boy, it, it was too big down here, so he pushed it up just over his elbow, went to sleep, and the next morning he woke up as a dragon. Now, this is just an analogy. It's not a, I don't really think there are dragons out there. And uh, everybody's worried because they can't find Eustace, but now they've got a dragon that's flying over them. And eventually they realized that it was Eustace, and they would communicate with them, and he would try to write things in the sand, and then his tail would wipe it out. Um, he was pretty miserable. And then that ring, that bracelet, just began to hurt and throb because he was a dragon now, and he couldn't get it off. This went on for weeks. And the whole time, things were changing inside for Eustace. He was realizing what a brat he was and all these things. And one night, he landed on the beach away from where everybody was camped, and Aslan was there. And he said to him, go into the pool and wash and take off your clothes and jump in. He's a dragon. And he said, so he, he basically told him, you're a reptile, shed your skin. So he clawed himself. You know how snake skin goes off. And he was still, he couldn't get it off. He did that three times. He clawed himself, and he couldn't get it off. And finally, the lion, who is representative of Christ, said, let me undress you. And he took his claws, and he pulled everything off. That's what... That's what it means to buy from God gold refined by fire. Because only God can take us to our basic level of need and give us what we need. Uh, the Bible talks about this. In the Old Testament, they call it being purified. In the New Testament, they call it being sanctified. And it's a process where God goes through and he strips off all the things that are, are a result of our choices until we have committed ourselves to him. And so, by gold, refined by God. God is also the tailor in this story in Revelation. You want to look to God for the right kind of fashion statement. Going on in verse 18, again, the, the, the last part of 18. Buy white garments from me, so you will not be shamed by your nakedness. From before the Romans until now, <laughs> we wear clothes to make a statement. And um, I have two brothers, and we're, we're all three completely different. Uh, I have I, I, the clothes I would wear when I was growing up, and, and, uh, and, and the clothes that I probably continue to wear is to just blend in. I, I, I don't really wear clothes that make me stick out and, and draw attention to what I wear, even though I know that with age that there are young people, no matter what you wear, 
it's going to draw attention. Oh, that's old-fashioned clothes or whatever. But I, I, that's my preference. My, my other brother, uh, he, his fashion statement was he wanted to make a statement about the clothes that he wore. I'm independent. And so he would wear things that said, he's independent. He's going he's gonna to march to his own drummer, you know? And uh, he would do such things as uh, when I was in high school, they had really, really bright socks for the guys. They were orange and pink and green and yellow. And a lot of people were wearing them. My brother would wear one of each color. And then they, were, they used to have something called bell-bottom pants. And they had some that were stripes going down. I would never wear those. My brother wore them because he just wanted to say, I'm independent. My other brother, I don't really know what his fashion style is, but I caught him once. We were at a, we were at a, a senior retreat together, uh, one of the General Church of the Nazarene senior retreats, and it was, in, it, was off, uh, it was in southern Georgia, and my brother and I were at a church that we were starting. We were, I was the lead pastor. He was on staff. And we went up to that retreat, and there was this lady who was, she was really elderly. She was, she was probably 57, 58, somewhere in there. And uh, she came up and was talking to us because we had a booth, a display area there. And, and she had sandals on with bright purple socks. And uh, while we were talking to her, my brother, I saw him glancing down at her socks, always. He, he just kept looking down at her socks. And so after she was gone, I said, I could see you looking at her socks. He goes, you could see that? And I don't know what that lady's fashion statement was, but she was trying to say something with her purple socks. Because that's what fashion does. We wear clothes to either stick out, blend in, uh, say something, you know, be comfortable. We, we've got a statement that we can just say, I'm just going to wear comfortable clothes. I don't care about all that stuff. But we're making a statement. And, and what Christ is saying is buy white garments from me so that you'll not be shamed by your nakedness. The best fashion statement for a follower of Christ is to show that you're a person by the way you live who's been refined by the fire of the Holy Spirit. Buy garments of white from me. So that no matter what is in fashion, everybody will know that you're wearing my clothes. Well, they might not be able to put their finger on the name, you know, but they'll know. They'll know. These clothes, they reflect God's nature, God's fruits, God's ways. So God's the banker, he's the tailor, He's the doctor. You want to look to God for the best eye care possible. Revelations 3.18, the last part. Buy ointment from me for your eyes so that you will be able to see. Um, you buy glasses so you can see better, right? Glasses off, glasses on. It makes a difference. And what God is saying, you've got to get your eyes fixed from me. 
But a lot of times what he's talking about is not just our physical eyes. He's talking about the filter on our mind and our hearts that help us see things the wrong way. Um, Ken and I are part of a, we have been part of a new church plant for a number of years. We've attended there, been members there. We very seldom get to go there because for the, for the last almost 20 years, we've been traveling almost every weekend somewhere. Uh, but we were there one Sunday, and they were still in the gymnasium at that point. It's in Mount Gilead, Ohio. It's a Nazarene church, and Pastor T.J. McNew, he and I were pastors together at the church uh, for quite a few years, and then he planted that church, which isn't far from where I was the pastor. And, um, and so they were meeting in a gym. They had metal chairs and a gym floor, and one day, the women had gone to a, a ladies' retreat in Columbus the, the day before. And there was a group, were they called Mary Mary? Yeah, Mary Mary. And that I've not heard of, but I, played, I, I liked the song that they played that day. And it was fast, and it was upbeat. And the ladies who had, who had actually heard Mary Mary in person, they were singing. They all came up and were telling about the retreat, and they were singing in unison with Mary Mary. And then there was Dorothy. Dorothy and Bob had come into the church. They had found Christ in the church. They were a part of the community. They were icons in the community. And between them, they, they were 80 years old. They were in their 80s. And they, between them, they had 80 tattoos. But, but they, were, they were, I was talking to Mike about his tattoos and the stories behind those. But, but they were way ahead of the trend. They had gotten tat, those tattoos decades ago. And... Uh, Bob had a very unique tattoo. He had a hairstyle like mine, and he had an eyeball on the back. And the first time I sat behind him, I thought, oh, somebody does have an eye in the back of their head. And, and they had Mickey Mouse and the Seven Dwarfs and all those things, and um, they came, and they, got, they, were, they found Christ. They became part of the church. And the day that all the ladies were up there, Dorothy decided to join them. So she wasn't able to get around a lot real easy, so she grabbed one of the metal chairs and she used that as her walker. And then she did something later that I learned by talking to her that she clogged, uh, because evidently she was into clogging, and I'm, and I'm not exactly sure what that is, but she clogged all the way up, around, inside, and came there and and joined in with everybody, and nobody thought anything about it. I was telling that story to illustrate something that I don't remember at a church that I do remember. And afterwards, somebody came up, and they, because at the closing of that story, I said, it really doesn't matter what you wear to church, because Bob and Dorothy felt comfortable to come in just like they were at, at our church. And that, I just added it as an aside. And this man came up, and I could, I can always tell when I've done something wrong. And um, I had done something wrong, and he just was really upset because there were some young adults there, and I had said, it doesn't matter what you wear to church. He said, do you know what you're doing to those folks? You're saying that anything they wear to church is okay. And I'm thinking, I think I said that. But I didn't argue with him. I didn't. So he pulled out Oswald Chambers, which is uh, a, a devotional reader that I've read for decades. And he had this one in his pocket about 
Christians shouldn't compromise. And I'm thinking, there wasn't that single early Christian who dressed like we do. Dress is a choice of culture. And he was really upset with that. And I just listened, and I, like I say, you can't argue with some people on some things like that. But uh, the next day, there was a 90-some-year-old guy who, who's, who, it was his choice, and it was for perfectly fine with his choice. He always came in with a tie and jacket, and that's fine, no problem with that. I, I just believe, come the way you are. Come the way you want to come. But he heard that conversation, evidently. And he came and he told me, he says, yesterday, when my wife was getting my clothes out, I told her not to get me a tie out. I said, okay, Joe, that's pretty good. I, whatever, whatever you want, it's okay. It's really okay. But you see, we need to buy ointment from God because we have filters in our hearts and minds. And we have taken sometimes our preferences and made them moral absolutes for everybody else. This person's preference was to dress this way in church, but his sense was that everybody had to dress just like him. And we do that. We have filters that we, we, just, we just don't even know they're there until God puts the ointment on and we start to see people like he sees them. You know what he sees in a person who's all muddy and has all kinds of things that are messed up in their life because of choices they've made? He sees how the mud can be changed to a masterpiece. And that's what he's saying to us. And that's not easy to do without God helping you. So God wants us to not be self-reliant. He wants us to help him to see people, to clothe ourselves in a way that reflects him, and to allow him to purify us and cleanse us and shape us and form us. Verse 20, uh, chapter 3, verse 20 says, Look here, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear me, calling and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal as friends. This is a well-known verse and maybe you've seen the picture of Jesus knocking at the door and, and you notice in the door, in the picture, there's no way to open the door from the outside. It can only be opened from the inside. And uh, uh, there, are, there are times when people use that picture and talking about letting Christ into your heart for the very first time and that's not a bad application of that. But, but here it was spoken to the church, not to people outside the church. And he was saying to the church in Laodicea, look, here I stand at the door and knock. If you hear me calling and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal as friends. He wants to be right inside everything that goes on in our lives. But it's really harder when we live in good times, even if the good times aren't as good as they used to be, they're still a lot better than many, many other places. The message to Laodicea is a message to our times, our culture, our place. 
and his call is to just let him help us see how much we're relying on him. It's awful hard to hear that still small voice of the Holy Spirit that we talk about sometimes if we're not in the habit of tuning in on a regular voice to recognize his voice. A few years ago at a general assembly, um, there was a young man that um, I'd been his pastor once, and um, when he was 12 and I was 30s, I guess. And um, he had gone on and become a missionary, uh, a volunteer missionary first. He was elected as the district superintendent of Belize District. Uh, as a 34-year-old, he'd come back to the United States to pastor. And I'd been in communication with him a lot, but I hadn't seen him since he was 12 years old. And we were walking through the, the halls at Indianapolis, and I was talking to somebody, and he went the other direction, and he stopped and turned around, and he said, Pastor Mike? Now, you've got to remember, I looked to him when I, he, when I knew him like I looked when I left here. <laughs> I changed my hairstyle, like I've mentioned, a different color, you know. And so we, he, he talked to me, and we talked. I said, well, Darren, how did you recognize me? He said, because of your voice. Because we, were, we, we hung around together with his family and his family with our family for six years. And we had a relationship. And when you have a relationship with God, we'll recognize the voice when he says, let's go deeper. Or when he says, are you trying to dress like to represent yourself or are you trying to dress to represent me or when he says do you really think I don't love that person do you really think I hate them because of whatever we can hear that voice if we are intentionally staying in contact with that voice that's the closing of the seven churches of revelation and their messages are timeless they're timeless. This morning we're going to close in prayer. I'm going to invite the praise team to come and lead us in a song. I'm going to put this microphone back. But uh, while they're coming, I want to just have a word of prayer with you. And then we'll stand and sing with them. Father, your word is alive and active. It's sharper than anything else. It comes in and it divides our hearts. And Lord... We don't fear that. We welcome it. We're not afraid of what you reveal. We ask you to look in us and help us look to you. Amen.